0: As I was studying through this week, I I was struck by the fact that the story that we're going to cover is actually in some ways, uh, it shares a storyline that's a very, very common storyline that we see uh, around us all the time, even now. Um, There's a significant number of movies and books and shows and even cartoons that share this very common storyline, albeit with Of course, variations and characters and the specifics and all that. But in this common storyline, there's a bad guy of some kind. And the story is developed in such a way that we grow to really dislike that character. We're shown all of the awful things that they do, which may include things like lying or cheating, stealing, bullying, political corruption, and maybe even murder. And you just can't help but root for their demise. And often, the storyline shows that bad character constantly succeeding in their dastardly plans until something happens, often with some wholesome protagonist uh, displaying bravery in the face of overwhelming obstacles to unseat or destroy that bad character. And I have to say, there's just something very satisfying about seeing a bully put back in their place, even if it's a fictitious story, Um, or a murderous dictator overthrown, or a criminal finally caught and imprisoned. There's an appropriate sense of justice. It seems right that that bad character is put down. Well, there's a lot of similarities to that common storyline in the passage that we're going to cover today. Uh, The writer in of 1 Kings here, this section of 1 Kings, is going to show us just how awful the bad guy in our story is, and it is truly disgusting. But the fascinating part is that at the end of the story, it isn't necessarily as satisfying as we might hope or expect. There's really a shocking twist, and in that twist, there is an astounding demonstration of the marvelous character of our God, it helps to bring us back to the reality that the main character in all of the Old Testament is our Lord. God is putting himself on display through history, through his people, in an unmistakable way to help us to learn and ultimately tell of his greatness. So, as you know, we've been working our way through the book of 1 Kings, studying the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And for the last few weeks, we've been looking primarily at the reign of King Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel, who reigned for 22 years from approximately 874 to 853 B.C., so in addition to Ahab, there is another very important character in Old Testament history that emerged onto the scene, who was the prophet Elijah. And God raised up Elijah to confront that evil king, Ahab. And this, of course, was a very dark point in Israel's history where Ahab, influenced by his horrible wife Jezebel, led Israel into some of the worst forms of pagan idolatry. Now, we already know how evil they were, but then this story today is going to show us a deeply det- disturbing picture that I think causes us to truly detest them at an even greater level. So let's jump into the story. And of course, the story is of Ahab and his the situation with Naboth and Naboth's vineyard. So the first thing that we're going to see here is Ahab begins to covet Naboth's vineyard. And then he ultimately makes a request to buy it. So looking here at 1 Kings 21, uh, beginning in verse 1, we'll start with the first couple of verses here. It says, Now it came about after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is close beside my house, and I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place. If you like, I will give you the price of it in money. So the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel was Samaria, but Ahab had a second palace in the fortified city of Jezreel. So I've got a map here that shows this, you can see I, I've circled some key points down in the bottom of the map, or the south part of the map, that's Samaria, and then up sort of in the middle of the map, I've circled Jezreel, and then just for reference, Mount Carmel is, uh, I've circled as well there, and then in the green outline there, I've outlined that Jezreel Valley. So. Jezreel, as you can see, was located on the eastern edge of that large central valley in Israel, incidentally called the Jezreel Valley. Um, And this is a fairly large fertile valley in the tribal territory of Issachar. And this is a place where there was a lot of farming that took place. And here apparently, right next to Ahab's palace there in Jezreel, was a vineyard that Ahab really liked. And this vineyard was owned by Naboth, who we're told was a resident of Jezreel. And I think we can surmise he was a long-term resident um, because he talks about the land that he had being his father's and, and generations of land. So now, of course, vineyards can be very beautiful. And the location here was a prime location uh, right next to the king's palace. And so Ahab wanted it for himself, although maybe it seems like he didn't really care about keeping it as a vineyard, but wanted it for what sounds like a more basic vegetable garden. Now there's some question as to what is meant by the term vegetable garden. Uh, It is clearly a garden of some kind, but it's possible that Uh, it is referring to just a basic vegetable garden, but I think more likely uh, this word could be broader to include all sorts of plants. And I think that's probably what Ahab had in mind. I think he wanted this as his royal garden, which could have included, of course, vegetables and such, but a great many plants, shade trees and things like that. Uh, It's interesting Archaeologists have studied Jezreel and found many similarities to Samaria, including the construction styles and the techniques, which makes sense because Omri, who is Ahab's father, began to build Samaria and then uh, also apparently began to build out Jezreel. And so they were both built up together. But then Ahab came along and apparently did a lot more building specifically in Jezreel. And so there were a number of impressive features that Ahab almost certainly had constructed. Uh these things these included things like a very high wall, a moat um around most of the main palace there and other things like that. And so there is one particular archeologist that suggested that all of this had been done specifically to amaze both the citizens of the land and many visiting foreigners as well. It's sort of a a statement that, yeah, we're here, I'm the king, I belong, you can't do anything about it, and you should be amazed and thankful that we're just here. That's sort of the idea. So having a well-planned, well-manicured, maintained royal garden, connected to the palace would have likely been part of what Ahab was wanting to do. Uh, Maybe an impressive addition to everything else that was there. But in any case, here he approached Naboth with an offer to exchange it for a better vineyard somewhere else, or rather to just purchase it from him. Now, initially this seems like a reasonable request, At the outside, Ahab doesn't seem to be wanting to swindle Naboth. Uh, He was offering what was probably, in his opinion, a fair exchange or a price. But there actually was a problem. And I think, likely, Ahab knew that problem already. Oh, by the way, here's some pictures of the area. So this is a hill. Uh, This is the actual hill where the city of Jezreel was built. Um, And this is a picture from that hill of Jezreel looking up towards the north. That's Mount Moreh in the north, which figures into some other biblical stories and such. Um, And then this is a picture of some of the excavations that they've they've been doing there in Jezreel. This could have partly been um, some of the palace there that Ahab stayed in. So some kind of interesting things. But you can see it's a beautiful area. It's got a lot of view you can see out for a long distance over the farmland and such. So it was a very nice place. So Naboth is going to respond to to Ahab's request and basically say, no way. So verse 3 says, but Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Naboth's answer here was to reject Ahab's offer. Now his response is interesting. It could be that the Lord, or it sounds like maybe the Lord specifically revealed to him not to sell the vineyard to Ahab. That could be, um, that seems to be the way it's, you read it in the NAS translation. I don't think that's really the idea I don't think it's likely the case Um, and that's because in the Old Testament law uh, in a couple of places but one of them specifically Numbers 36 7 states thus no inheritance of the sons of Israel shall be transferred from tribe to tribe for the sons of Israel shall each hold to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. So there in the Old Testament law they weren't allowed to sell property to someone from a different tribe. Now, Jezreel was in the tribal territory of Issachar, so Naboth clearly was also of the tribe of Issachar. Now, Ahab was not of the tribe of Issachar, and actually, I'm not 100% sure what tribe he was from, as I couldn't find where it was explicitly stated. That's one of those things that I Got looking into it and started to research and was spending way too much time and had to just say, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, so the I don't know, maybe maybe you know, Wes, uh, I couldn't I couldn't find it. But um, the the city of Samaria was actually built in the tribal territory of Manasseh, and so I think it's probably most likely that Ahab was from the tribe of Manasseh. But either way, uh, that being the case. Naboth, by the Old Testament law, was technically forbidden to sell that land to Ahab. So Ahab probably knew that. I think he knew that very well. And it didn't seem to have hindered him in the past because he had the palace that was right there and was spending a fair amount of time in Jezreel. We find him there in multiple different stories. So it didn't seem to hinder him in the past. But in this case, Naboth, respectably, was determined to obey the Lord, which I bet just irked the fire out of Ahab. So following that exchange, we see Ahab's going to throw himself a grand old pity party. So verse 4 says, So Ahab came into his house, sullen and vexed, poor Ahab, because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, for he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. Wow. <laughs> what a rotten little brat. Uh, several years ago, I was teaching a children's Sunday school class for a third or fourth grade or something like that. And I remember asking them... Uh, to show me what kind of face they thought Ahab was making. And it was hilarious. Um, They pooched out their lips. They crossed their eyebrows like they were mad. They folded their arms and started making, they hung their heads and started sniffing and whimpering and all of that. Um, Now, I'm not going to ask all of you to do that, but uh, (laughs) what was interesting is that the kids absolutely understood what Ahab was doing he was behaving like a spoiled three-year-old who didn't get his way. Poor Ahab. The first part of the verse references that Ahab came into the house sullen and vexed. Now, this is not the first time that Ahab's behavior is described using those terms. In fact, the last verse of the previous chapter, in chapter 20, verse 43, it says, so the king of Israel went to his house sullen and vexed and came to Samaria. And the context there was that God had sent a prophet to condemn Ahab for letting Ben-Hadad go. We studied that last week. So on both of these occasions, Ahab responds in this manner when he is confront- confronted with something that God has said. His response is sullen and vexed. And The idea here with these words is a combination of anger, of frustration and resentment and depression. And I would be willing to bet that Ahab was thinking things like, God is always against me. I just don't understand why he won't let me do what I want to do. Something, he's always in my path. He just doesn't see what a really great guy I am. If he'd just give me a chance and so on and so on and so on we'll see next that Jezebel is going to see what's going on and decide to intervene. So that's in verses 5 through 7. It says, but Jezebel, his wife came to him and said to him, how is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? And so he said to her, because, I can just hear the whine in his voice, because I spoke to Naboth, uh, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your your vineyard for money or else if it pleases you I will give you a vineyard in its place and kind of see that he's saying I mean I gave him a perfectly reasonable offer he didn't take it but he said I will not give you my vineyard and Jezebel his wife said to him do you now reign over Israel arise eat bread and let your heart be joyful I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite So here, Jezebel came to find out what was going on with Ahab, and Ahab relates his sad little story to her. And Jezebel's response is disturbing, actually. She says, do you now reign over Israel? Of course, that's spoken sarcastically, but she's basically saying, wait a minute, Ahab, aren't you the king? And the inference is that she felt it was completely within his power for him to go out and get what he wanted. Why not? What God said was irrelevant. That doesn't matter. You just, you're the king. You get to decide what you want to do. And then she decided to take matters into her own hands, which we'll see here in a second. But one of the things that I truly believe about Ahab is that he was a sad excuse for a man. Um, Just an immature weakling. I think he was a weak leader I think we can see that in a number of different cases and I I can even see that it seems like Jezebel was even the real power behind the throne in this case he was perfectly happy to let his wife take over something that he wasn't man enough to do on his own not that any action should have been taken Um, but it's sad that he's going to let his wife take over and in fact Later on, God is going to hold Ahab directly accountable for what happened. He was the leader and the king of Israel, and he needed to right there to step up and say, no, no, you can't do anything to him. That, this conversation is over. I tried. I don't like it, but we're not doing anything. That's not what he did. He chose, to, uh, chose instead to step aside and let her handle his dirty work also seems extremely manipulative on his part. He acted like a baby to get Jezebel to feel sorry for him so that she would do what he wasn't willing to do himself. I mean, what a worm. This was the king of Israel, and so we see, we'll see what Jezebel decided to do about it. So here's her conspiracy and plot beginning in verse 8, says, So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed him, sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she wrote in the letters, saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him, saying, You cursed God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. So in this situation, someone stood in the way of a political leader getting what they wanted, so that leader had the person ultimately murdered in a way that theoretically couldn't easily lead back directly to them. Now, if that's not political corruption, I don't know what is. Here, Jezebel had official letters written and sealed with Ahab's seal instructing the leaders of the city to declare a fast and falsely accuse Naboth of a crime and have him executed for it. And so here again, I think Ahab knew very well what was going on. No one just takes the king's seal and uses it to create official letters without the king's knowledge. Now maybe he didn't understand all the, didn't know all the details, but he knew what was up. He knew what was going on. At the very least, he was complicit, but I think it's more than that. And this idea here that she came up with of proclaiming a public fast was something that was done when governmental leaders believed that they had somehow come under the judgment of God. So connected to the fast, there would be an official meeting, and the purpose of that meeting would be to determine who sent, who's Who's creating this situation that's caused us to fall into under God's judgment? Um, So in this case, Naboth was being set up as the person responsible for some supposed impending disaster. So in their minds, eliminating him was in the public's best interest. How right Solomon was when he said there is nothing new under the sun. The same type of approach we can see happens today in political circles in other countries as well as even in our own country. Just get rid of those who dared to dissent from the all-powerful leaders. And I wonder if those leaders understand that they're following the pattern of Jezebel. And as we will see here, the leaders of the city would carry out her plot. So verse 11 Says So the men of his city, the elders and the nobles who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent them. And they proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people. Then two worthless men came in and sat before him, and the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth, before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king." So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent word to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. Now, it seems like Naboth was maybe the only decent man in the city. He was the guy that stood up and said, no, I'm not selling you my property. God has forbidden me to sell my property to someone who's not of this tribe and I'm not going to do it. Uh, he stood his ground in obedience to the Lord but the leaders of the city who should have said no way Jezebel that is way too far just seemed to happily go along with her instructions and carried them out and apparently we even learn later in 2nd Kings chapter 9 that it wasn't just Naboth who was killed but his sons were killed as well so Naboth and his sons were taken out of the city to a field and executed, stoned, left f- and left there without being properly buried. It's terrible, absolutely awful um, that nobody else was willing to stand up. S- demonstration of the sad state of affairs of what was going on there in. Israel and and I bet the people knew I mean there may have been people who are quietly dissenting from what was going on afraid to stand up and apparently with maybe some good reason um, but it's sad to see the depth of corruption that even caused the leaders of the city to go along with this so in verse 15 Jezebel informs Ahab here says, when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. Now, isn't this angering? I mean, Naboth did what was right, and Ahab killed him for it, Jezebel and Ahab. And they did it in such a way that they could deny they had anything to do with it. The public probably even agreed with what happened and believed that Naboth had brought judgment on his own head. So Naboth, who did what was right, was actually accused of doing what was wrong and was executed for it. Now, in all of this, if we were to look at the Ten Commandments that were violated through this, there was murder stealing of his land and his family lands ahab had no right to take naboth's family property there's clearly coveting that's going on with this and bearing false witness so four of them four of the ten right there we could also add to that that there was a total disregard for god's law a lack of concern for the sanctity of human life pride manipulation, corruption, bullying, abuse of power, deception, injustice, disregard for a fellow Israelite, which under the law was a greater sin, um, sinful anger, hatred, discontentment, and ingratitude, to just name some of them. Ahab and Jezebel were truly terrible people. And they had clearly influenced the other leaders of the city such that those leaders were willing to participate right along with them and do their dirty work. And of course, this is not an action that God will allow to go unchecked. He will intervene, and he does so by sending Elijah to confront Ahab. So picking it up in verse 16, the first thing that we see here is... Ahab goes and takes Naboth's vineyard. So when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab ar- arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. And then, right there while he's in the garden, Elijah is sent to confront Ahab. So, verse 17 says Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, the king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he's gone down to take possession of it. So, verse 19 begins to relay God's judgment, his pronouncement of judgment against Ahab and Jezebel. And so, there's this first part, uh, an initial pronouncement of judgment in verse 19, Uh, where God says you shall speak to him saying thus says the Lord have you murdered and also taken possession and you shall speak to him saying thus says the Lord in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth the dogs will lick up your blood even yours so it starts here with God challenging Ahab and with an almost incredulous question Keep in mind that Ahab was standing there in Naboth's vineyard, essentially caught red-handed. And God asked, have you murdered and taken possession? Did you just kill Naboth and now you're stealing from his family? Now, it's important to note here that Ahab wasn't the trigger man. He wasn't even the one who devised the plot But God placed the blame principally and squarely upon Ahab. He was the one ultimately responsible. He was the king. He could have stopped what was going on at any time, but he didn't. Weakness or inaction as a leader is not a viable excuse before God. So as a result, God essentially told Ahab that he was a dead man and that ironically he would die in the exact place that Naboth died now isn't that a satisfying response yeah and Ahab's gonna get what's coming to him now Elijah wasn't finished relaying God's judgment against Ahab here uh, there was more he had to say and we will pick that up in verse 21 but here in verse 20 we see that in relation to Ahab being a murderer and a thief he was also an interrupter So there in verse 20, Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And I like Elijah's response here. And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And then Elijah continues with God's pronouncement against Ahab. So there's this sort of interrupting interchange that takes place right there. Um, And then Elijah continues in verse 21 says, Behold, I will bring evil upon you and utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and because you have made Israel sin. So pretty comprehensive and clear here. Ahab is done, and his whole family would be wiped out. He would have no lasting legacy. God also has a pronouncement against Jezebel in verse 23. It says, "Of Jezebel also has the Lord spoken saying, "The dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel." And so for her part, in all of this, jezebel would also suffer an ignominious death and not given an honorable burial once we get into the second kings in i don't know it's going to be a little while um, There's several chapters that we have to cover but once we get there we'll see exactly how god would bring about this prophecy through a man named jehu so continuing on here verse 24 talks about the dishonorable deaths of ahab's family says, the one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat, and the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven will eat. Now that, that phrase has been used, or, or that sentence has been used already a couple of times to describe Jeroboam, what's going to happen to him and his family, as well as Basha. And so the point here is really about a dishonorable burial. But in a sense, it is the height of humiliation under the Jewish customs and, and all of that of that day. To leave someone unburied was, in a sense, desecration of the body. It was something that was not done lightly, uh, and it was a big deal. Nobody wanted to be told that they were going to be left in a field so that the dogs could have at them. So the passage also continues from here, with what appears to be a statement from the prophet who's recording the story in 1 Kings, and it's primarily a a summary statement of Ahab's sin. So verse 25 and 26, he says, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord, Because Jezebel, his wife, incited him, he acted very abominably in following idols, according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. So here the writer, who very well may have been Elijah in this case, uh, included this statement to underscore the utter depravity and wickedness of King Ahab. So from a comparison perspective, up to this point, there was no one that was worse than Ahab. We're also told here explicitly that the reason Ahab chose to lead the country into gross wickedness was because of the influence of his wife. goes without saying, be careful who you marry. Also recognized, by the way, on that uh, topic, that even for guys, the person who you marry will almost certainly have an influence on you, whether good or bad. So, for those of you who are still looking, uh, looking forward to finding the right person, a key question would be, does this person influence me towards godliness and righteousness, or negatively towards sin? That may well be one of the most important questions when looking to find the right person. Also, for those of us who already are married, we should understand that our actions and decisions are going to impact and influence our spouse. Men, remember that we are called to faithfully lead, unlike what Ahab did here. But back to the passage, verse 26 is really a very sad testimony. The reason that God chose to displace the residents of the land of Israel before Israel came in and conquered was because of their rampant idolatry. And here was Ahab choosing to adopt the very idolatry Israel was sent to eradicate. So it's a sad assessment of the dark state of the nation of Israel under Ahab's rule. Now, how's Ahab going to respond to all of this? Based on the past history, when he hears what God has to say, it makes sense that he would again descend into his sullen and vexed pattern. But that isn't exactly what he did. So we'll see in verse 27, Ahab's response to the Lord's judgment. So it came about when Ahab heard these words... That he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted, and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. So, the tearing of clothes was a symbol of great personal distress and sadness. And then, sackcloth was a rough, inexpensive material, typically made from goat's hair. And it was not comfortable to wear, being rough and itchy. And it would be a sign of deep anguish and sorrow. So Ahab also fasted for a period of time. um, And all of this was the typical symbol of humility and repentance. Now, sadly, we know that Ahab's repentance was not full and was not complete. However, as we'll see, God, who looks at the heart, recognized this as an expression of genuine humility in response to God's words. So it appears that in this case, Ahab truly believed what God said and behaved in at least a degree of appropriate humility and possibly even a degree of repentance. Following this, we're going to see that shocking twist of the story that I mentioned earlier. By all rights, Ahab should have been immediately killed in accordance with the sentence that God pronounced, that would have been an appropriate and I might add for us a very satisfying conclusion. Yeah, wipe that guy out. And while humility is a good and appropriate response to news like Ahab received, humility doesn't negate all con- consequences. Uh, we can do something wrong and then repent of that and very well still experience the consequences of those things but in this case God is going to put his character on a display on display in a poignant and remarkable way so verse 28 we're going to see God's astounding mercy then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. That's amazing. God here, instead of obliterating Ahab, which he was well within his authority to do, chose instead to show mercy to the most evil and despicable king, of all of Israel's history up to that point. And he did that based on Ahab's small display of humility, even knowing that it was not complete repentance. I look at that and I don't even know what to say. (laughs) It's kind of mind-blowing, blows my mind. And I can't help but think of Isaiah 55 verses seven through nine which says let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the lord and he will have compassion on him and return to your god for he will abundantly pardon and then god says this for my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways declares the lord for as high for as the heavens are higher than the earth So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts, your thoughts. Now, clearly in this particular case, God's mercy was not saving mercy. Nonetheless, it was still an authentic expression of his genuine kindness and mercy that God allowed Ahab to live out the rest of his days. Clearly, God's ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Now, interestingly, the pronouncement that God made about Ahab, that he would die dishonorably in the field where Naboth died, didn't come to pass. That's not how Ahab died. He was killed several years later in a battle and was given an honorable burial in his hometown of Samaria. However, his son Joram was actually dishonorably killed In that same field where Naboth died. uh, Along with his sons, by the way. So in this case, based on the humility that Ahab demonstrated, God relented from his original plan to destroy Ahab, even though it was later fulfilled through his son. Now, of course, this brings up a big theological question of whether or not God's plans change. Um, And I don't have time to get into all of that this morning but it is a very fun discussion Um, but let's just say that the answer to the question of does God change his plans is both yes and no Uh, God has declared and ordained the end from the beginning and there is nothing that can change or alter his plans at the same time God responds to us in prayer and responds to our repentance I mean we heard a case of that even this morning um, with uh, Tony, uh, Tony's son who uh, was going through that very, very difficult situation. And what did she ask for? She asked for prayer. And we prayed. And what did God do? Something changed. And so that's a great uh, expression of what God does. So This is also not the only time that we see that God changes his course of action. And there's mystery here that honestly, I don't believe that we were fully meant to grasp. But the reality is that somehow, the changes that God makes in his plans perfectly fits into his plans and his grand designs. And I'm thankful that we serve a God who is both in complete sovereign control of all things, and yet hears and responds to his people. Truly, his ways are higher than our ways. Our minds ought to be blown when we see things like this. Our minds ought to be stretched when we see God demonstrating mercy to one of the most awful men who had lived, uh, certainly one of the most awful kings uh, in all of Israel's history. But there's some lessons in it things that I want to contemplate as we go through here. and I guess I popped them all up on the screen at once, but looking back over the story in the broader picture of Ahab's reign, I am increasingly amazed and fascinated by the unfailing faithful and merciful character of God. Just think for a minute about all that God did for Ahab. Of course, There was already the rich history of God's faithfulness, care, and provision for the nation of Israel as a whole. There was already the Old Testament law that was given to them at that time, but God chose to demonstrate his sovereignty and mercy in a unique and special way to Ahab. Now, he could have just dismissed Ahab and gotten rid of him. He had already done that to less evil kings at that point. But God sent arguably the most famous prophet in the Old Testament apart from Moses to Ahab. I mean, right there, that's shocking. He demonstrated with great power on Mount Carmel that Baal was a joke and that God alone is worthy of worship. He granted Ahab miraculous victories over Ben-Hadad of Aram that we covered last week, proving that God was committed to protecting protecting and providing for his people he also directly confronted ahab's sin and of course having sin confront confronted is never enjoyable and clearly ahab hated it but god confronting our sin is an expression of his mercy so the question is why ahab why did he do all of that for that guy why him of all people Kind of a curious question even. Why did the Holy Spirit move the writer of this section of 1 Kings to include the story of Naboth that we covered today? We already know that Ahab and Jezebel were terribly wicked, and this story takes it to a whole new level as we get a glimpse into just how horrible these two were. They were truly deplorable human beings. And yet, astoundingly, even shockingly, we see God chose to demonstrate his mercy to ahab as i stated earlier this to me is truly mind-blowing there is no way that ahab deserved god's mercy and that's exactly the point we look at ahab and appropriately recoil and disgust we naturally root for god to blast him off the face of the earth along with his vile wife but Here in this story, there is the poignant picture that we in our sin are really no different. Yeah, sure, maybe we're not quite as bad as Ahab and Jezebel, but we are no less deserving of God's wrath and judgment. We all know how dark our hearts really were before Christ, and even after becoming believers, we still know that there is sin that's lurking there that wants to take over. When we see God demonstrating mercy to us, it ought to blow our minds every bit as much as when we see him demonstrating it to Ahab. There is no way that we are deserving of God's mercy, yet God extends it to us freely in the gospel. Full forgiveness, complete mercy, and all of his grace is offered to us freely through the work of Christ. And all that God asks is a humble willingness to confess our sins and to turn from our sin and instead embrace all that Christ is. That is glorious, and he is honored through it. Another thing that we see here in this story is that God responds to humility and repentance and will always show mercy and forgiveness to those who truly seek it. Another one here is that we see in the case of Naboth is doing the right thing can sometimes result in hardship and persecution. Of course, we could ask, you know, have things like that ever happened to you when you did the right thing and got burned for it? Well, Naboth did that here. Um, However, that reality shouldn't dissuade us from doing what is right in every situation. Those challenges will always be temporary, um we serve a living savior who will one day right every wrong we long for that day i long for the day when our lord will reign on this earth uh when he will reign in righteousness and justice perfectly so that'll be a great day the other last thing i want to put on here is that we need to be aware of and potentially repent of thinking patterns that can lead us to act and feel like Ahab. How did Ahab respond when he heard God's words? Sullen and vexed, remember? Um, Obviously, there are many struggles in life, and they aren't enjoyable, but reacting to those struggles like Ahab did, where we become sullen and vexed, is an example of sinful thinking patterns. You know, it's, it's interesting, even the sermon that Tom had today, just that concept of joy, and the importance of it, and the fact that it's a decision, it's not just a trait. Um, it's a decision, it's not necessarily an emotion. Our emotions can be going haywire, but we can find joy. And, but there also has to be a determination to follow those commands, even as we talked about, and this is a case where Ahab did exactly the opposite of what he should have done. In those difficult times, we have to challenge ourselves, just like Tom said, to believe, apply, and live by the truth. We have to allow the scriptures to dictate how we think and react. And that includes sometimes recognizing that our feelings and emotions may be, in fact, leading us into wrong patterns of thinking. Again, I have to echo with Tom. Stop listening to yourself and start preaching to yourself. Preaching the truth. Now, these things are often not easy. They're very hard. Dealing with depression and and things like that, those are not simple answers. It's not a switch that we can throw and suddenly we're cured. But the reality is that in Christ, we have all the resources that we need in the gospel through God's word by the work of the Holy Spirit to live a life that honors our Lord. And if you need help in that area, please come talk to someone. Come talk to me or Terry or Cam or one of the other shepherding leaders in the class or one of the other pastors or elders here. All of us would love to be able to help you in whatever ways ways that we can there. So that's the story for today. Um, And I hope you are encouraged as I was when I was going through it and just amazed by the mercy of our Lord. Our Father in heaven, we just thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the ways that you reveal yourself to us in ways that are truly astounding. Lord, we see this story and freely admit that our ways are not your ways. Your ways are higher. They're greater. They're better. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that you are on your throne, that You have both declared the end from the beginning, but you hear us. You respond to our needs. You can even, in some cases, alter plans, though that's beyond our comprehension. But we thank you that you are a God who responds to your people, particularly uh, when your people are uh, coming to you in humility and repentance. So, Lord, we just thank you for that. We thank you for this season and just the opportunity to consider what it is that you have done for us in Christ we ask all of this in the name of his in the name of your son and amen